Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Well, good morning, everyone. For those that don't know me, my name's Andrew Newnham, and I have the privilege of sharing God's Word with you today. My family has been coming to New Spring for around a year now, and when Dave asked me if, if I was interested in being on the teaching team, to be honest, I was honoured, but also a little nervous. Because even though it's a great honour to actually speak out God's Word and to interpret what the Bible and the Holy Spirit is saying, it's also fairly nerve-wracking. <laughs> Getting up in front of people is always nerve-wracking. But to cut a long story short, I said yes. Because while I'll let you in on a little secret about preaching, when you prepare a sermon, you learn so much more when preparing than you could possibly learn by just listening to the sermon. So it's always a good idea to say yes if someone asks you to speak. It's not to say it's not going to be nerve-wracking, but you do learn a lot about yourself and about God when preparing. And sometimes God even uses what you say to speak directly to people. And that's what I'd love to happen here today. Because if it was just up to my knowledge and ability, sorry, but you wouldn't learn anywhere near as much. So before we begin, let's bring this time to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you use what I say this morning to really speak into lives. I pray you make yourself known, and I pray you allow people to move past the words I am actually saying to what you're trying to say directly to them. I thank you that you have promised that wherever two or more are gathered in your name, you are there. So I pray you make yourself known today at New Spring. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the last couple of months, we've been looking at the section in Matthew's Gospel that is placed directly after Jesus has just presented his Sermon on the Mount or as we've been learning, his guidelines for how to live as kingdom people. This morning's talk is called The Real Miracle, and there is some notes in the church app if you would like to follow along. You'll also find references to other passages I'll be referring to this morning. This morning we're going to see two major developments in Jesus' ministry. We'll see Jesus' power over sin and how wonderful that really is. And second, we're going to see the first rumblings of opposition from Jesus' greatest opponents, the Jewish religious leaders. This morning we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. If you have your Bibles handy, if you want to grab them and turn with me. And let's read. From chapter 1, from chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up, took his mat, and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. Well, as so often we hear from this pulpit, first let's talk about context. As we have heard over the last few months, Jesus has just come down from speaking to a huge crowd up on the mountain to perform miracle after miracle. In fact, in the book of Matthew, Jesus performs nine miracles, or ten depending on how you count them. And these miracles can be grouped into three groups of three, with each group of three being broken up with another teaching. This week, we're at the end of the second group of three miracles. The first group of three is when Jesus shows us his power and authority to heal our physical bodies by first showing us his power to make us clean by cleansing a leper. Then he shows us his power to heal at a distance by healing the centurion's servant. And finally, Jesus shows us how he carries out diseases by healing Peter's mother-in-law. Matthew groups the first three miracles together to show us that Jesus has power over the physical world. Next we read about what it costs to follow Jesus before going on to the second group of three miracles. The second group of three miracles Matthew presents us with show us Jesus' power over the supernatural by showing us his power and authority over nature, his power and authority over demons, and over sin. In Matthew 8, 23 to... 27, Jesus shows us his power over nature by calming the storm. And we heard a couple of weeks ago from Levi about, this can, about how this can be a metaphor for the storms in our lives. Then in verse 28 to 34, Jesus shows us his power over the spiritual world by casting out demons out of two men. And today he's about to show us his power over sin itself. The passage we're about to work through raises and answers two questions about Jesus. Does Jesus have authority to forgive sins? And how can we actually be certain that Jesus actually can forgive sins? Our passage starts with Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over and came to his own town. Now this happened straight after Jesus had just cast out some demons and sent them into a herd of pigs. After he had done this, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. This shows us that Jesus does not linger long where he is not wanted. We see here that even demons are powerless to keep Jesus out. But humans that don't desire his holiness, authority and power keep him out of their lives, homes, churches, and communities by simply asking him to leave. What a missed opportunity. Imagine what sort of transformation they would have seen in their community if only they had not pleaded with Jesus to leave. When preparing for today, I heard it said that God is a gentleman and he will not force himself on anyone. So Jesus returns to his own town. We read in Mark that this is Capernaum. 
Jesus has already told us that a prophet has no honor in his own town. Yet here he comes. Not seeking his own honor, but rather going where God leads him. Next we read, some men brought him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now if we compare this passage to what we read in Mark and Luke's account of the same miracle, we find that these friends that were bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus actually climbed on the roof of where he was speaking, dug a hole through that roof and lowered their friend down to Jesus. Now, I know you probably all know this story. It's a very common Sunday school story. But have have you ever stopped to think about why they would have had to go through so much effort to get to Jesus? Think about it in today's context. If there was a gathering of people and a paralyzed man was brought in, carried, would you not make room for him to get to the front so he can hear as well? But they didn't do that. In fact... It seems like all they, they all chose to ignore the paralyzed man and instead just tried to listen to Jesus. They were so unconcerned with the state of the paralyzed man that they didn't make any room for him to be brought to, to Jesus. All these people were crowding around to hear Jesus of all people while at the same time ignoring someone that was trying to get to him but couldn't help themselves. They were more concerned with being able to hear clearly themselves than actually help someone that couldn't help themselves at all. But these men's, man's friends were so determined to get to Jesus that they found a way around the unconcerned people in the way. His friends realized that they were powerless to help the paralyzed man, just as we are sometimes powerless to help our friends. All they could do for their friend was to bring him to the feet of Jesus and have faith that Jesus would have compassion on him. We all need friends like this, don't we? Friends that will go around the social standards of the day and do what is not necessarily the proper thing to do just to bring us to the feet of Jesus. Do you have friends like this? Or let's put it another way. Are you a friend like this? If you had a friend that you say saw crossing the road and you saw a car driving out of control down the road that was about to hit them, would you not go out of your way to help them even if you had to do something that was socially not normal? Of course you would. At the very least, you would scream and shout for them to get out of the way. I would imagine any of us would do whatever we could to help one of our friends in this situation. But if we change the situation slightly, and rather than a pending car accident, they didn't know Jesus, would you offer to introduce them? Would you say something that may be seen as socially not the norm in order to introduce your friend to Jesus? Would you be willing to be labelled as one of those Christian fanatics just so you can talk to your friend about who Jesus is? Would you have the hard conversation with them and ask them where they think they're going when they die? And would you have the same urgency about this as you would a pending car accident? I know for myself, I often come up with excuse after excuse as why not to raise these sorts of questions with those I love. 
or I just put them off. And I often wonder if I really saw the world through eternal eyes, if I'd act differently. Another interesting aspect of this passage is that Jesus agreed to help this man because of the faith of his friends, not necessarily entirely his faith. Now, that's not to say that this man didn't have any faith, but just that as a friend, your faith counts when you bring someone to the foot of Jesus. How reassuring is that? Jesus saw the faith of the paralyzed man and his friends and how hard they worked to overcome obstacles to get to him. So what's the first thing he says? Is it get up and walk? No. It's take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Or as it says in the Gospel of Luke, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, how do you think you would have felt if you were one of the friends or even the paralyzed man? You had just gone through so much effort for what you thought was your, the greatest need and instead of healing his paralysis, Jesus just says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if the story stopped there, it would have felt like a bit of a letdown. <laughs> Surely, if you're in that position, you'd be asking yourself, is that it? Is that all you're going to do for me? But in fact, what Jesus did was look at this man and see what his greatest need was and that was for forgiveness, even more than his need to ever walk again. So often we get caught up with the physical ailments and miss the greater need we have for forgiveness. The man's spiritual state was Jesus' first and greatest concern. After all, if you look at the eternal spiritual state of someone versus the physical state they are currently in, surely your priorities have to shift to the eternal state. You know, there's also a reason Jesus chose to link this particular miracle with forgiveness rather than any of his other healing miracles. And that's because paralysis is so closely connected with powerlessness. Think about what it would have been like to be paralyzed, especially during the time of Jesus. It would be hard enough today, let alone back then, without some of what we'd expect, such as a wheelchair, a good healthcare system, or even just running water. If you were paralyzed during the time of Jesus, you would have had to rely on others for everything. Even if you just wanted a drink of water, you would have had to ask someone to go down to the well, get some water, bring it back to you. You couldn't do that yourself. Also, during the time of Jesus, sickness was so closely related to sin in a way that if you got sick, most people would think that it was because of your sin. And if you got really sick, then you must be really sinful. So for this paralyzed man, he would have been living with the question, is it my own sin that has caused me to be paralyzed? And surely that would have added to his mental health and his difficult life. This man's paralytic state could also represent our powerlessness to save ourselves when it comes to sin. The same truth is taught elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Romans 5, 6, we read, You see, at just the right time, 
while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The whole reason Christ died for us is because we were powerless to save ourselves. There's nothing we could do that would ever be enough to save ourselves from our own sin. We are completely powerless when it comes to sin. But the good news is, Jesus is. And so this man's paralysis can be seen as a picture of our complete and utter spiritual inability before God. We are powerless to save ourselves from the penalty of sin. We are powerless to save ourselves from the power of sin. We are powerless to save ourselves from the presence of sin. We are powerless to save ourselves. Far too often, we concentrate on the powerful, giving, healing hand of Jesus. But first and foremost, we need to remember that he is a saviour. He has power to forgive spiritual sickness in the form of sin. Jesus saw in this paralysed man a need greater than physical health. This man needed spiritual health. And he was powerless to save himself. So Jesus met him at his greatest need. We also read that we are saved by faith alone. We read that when Jesus saw their faith, he chose to forgive the man's sin. In Ephesians 2 it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself. It is a gift from God, not by works, so no one can boast. The Bible is clear. We are saved by faith alone. The whole first section of this miracle teaches us that our greatest need is forgiveness. But do we actually believe that? If we really did believe that, and if we were asked, we would have to say, I would rather be forgiven of my sins and paralyzed than have the rest of my life unforgiven and have full bodily movement. Or I'd rather be forgiven of my sins and have cancer than unforgiven and cancer-free. Or what about I would rather be forgiven of my sins and die tomorrow than be unforgiven and live a long, trouble-free life. Now, I'm not trying to take away from how hard some of these things are. But, the mo but more, I just want to emphasise our need for forgiveness. It is true that our greatest need is for forgiveness, but so often we don't live in a way that demonstrates this. Now, if this story stopped here, then one thing we need to realize is the miracle has already happened. Jesus has healed the most broken part of this man. Jesus looked on the paralyzed man and saw what his greatest need was and healed him of it. At this point, we're faced with the obvious question. Does Jesus actually have authority to forgive sins? We next read, at this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Well, first, what is blaspheming? Well, the Greek word, blasphemeo, I think that's right, 
means to vilify, defame, revile, or speak evil. And there's two basic ways to commit blasphemy. One is to ascribe evil to God, but the other is it's also blasphemy to ascribe the divinity to people, especially when referring to yourself. Now, I want to paint you a bit of a picture. Back when I first got my P-plates, one of the first times I went out driving by myself, I remember I was a very careful driver, but when I came home and was parking the car, I remember I did so well. I didn't stall the whole drive. I didn't make any mistakes. In fact, quietly, I was very proud of myself, and to be honest, maybe a little bit arrogant. But when I went to the park, park the car in my parents' carport, just when I was about to stop, what happened? Well, you know when you're lazy and you don't put your foot completely on the brake pedal? <laughs> in fact, I think I just had my big toe on the brake. And what happened? Of course, my foot slipped off the brake and went straight into the accelerator. The car jumped forward. It went straight through the fence at the end of the carport. I felt so bad. Because growing up, my parents never had a lot of money. We were always looked after, but I remember at that time, money was particularly tight. See, my parents are both missionaries, so we were never very rich. Plus, I wasn't working at the time, and I knew I couldn't afford to fix the car or the fence. I felt so bad because I knew this simple mistake would cost my parents, and they would have to bail me out. Now, in this situation, what are my options? Could I just say, I forgive myself and it's all better? No. Could I just pretend it didn't happen? Problem is, the fence is on the ground and the car's dented. Be a bit of a giveaway. No, instead, I had to go to my mum and dad. I had to ask them for forgiveness, even though it was an accident. Sin can sometimes be like this. Sometimes we don't even mean to sin, but we still need to go to our Father in heaven and ask for forgiveness. Because sin, by its very nature, is going against God. So God is the one and only one that can forgive it. Just like with my accident, I had to go to my parents for forgiveness because it was their property that was damaged. It was their car and it was their fence. When we sin, we're going against God. Therefore, God is the one and only one that can forgive us. Now, by claiming the right to forgive sins, Jesus was claiming a privilege that belongs only to God. In Psalms 103, it says, Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. The Lord God is the one and only one that can forgive sins. You know what? The scribes were actually correct in realizing Jesus' statement was blasphemy. If we look at the situation from the eyes of the scribes of the time, they were completely correct in thinking Jesus was blaspheming because the reality is they could not come to the realization that there was only one other logical conclusion. And that is that Jesus actually has authority and the right to forgive sins because he was actually God. So Jesus either has the authority to forgive sins or he's a blasphemer. He's either God or he's crazy. This brings us to the second question I raised earlier. How can we know Jesus actually forgave 
this man sinned. So Jesus and the teachers of the law are at a standstill. How do we know if Jesus actually forgave this man's sins? How can anyone know? There's nothing visible about forgiveness. It's an act that takes place in the spiritual realm. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven, but how do you know if they actually have authority to forgive those sins? How do we know Jesus actually forgave this man's sins? Well, luckily for us, Jesus answers this question for us. If we read on, it says, Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins by healing the paralytic man of his paralysis. Jesus not only has the power over sin, but he proves his power by showing us his power over the natural world. This man was completely powerless to help himself both in his sin and in his paralysis, but Jesus shows his power over both by telling the man to get up, take his mat, and go home. A crazy man could not do this and actually have the man get up, take his mat, and go home. This proves that Jesus is not crazy or a blasphemer. And if God is the only one that can forgive sins, then the only other logical conclusion is that Jesus is actually God. Now this passage might also raise the following question for you. If Jesus could forgive sins before he died, did he still have to die? Well, the short answer is yes. Last week, when it was Easter, we remembered that Jesus actually died for our sins, past, present, and future. But the price still had to be paid. And when Jesus forgave this, the paralyzed man, he was the one and only one that could do that. But that didn't change the fact that the price still had to be paid. Just like when I asked my parents for forgiveness, even though they did forgive me straight away, I had pretty good parents, when I asked, sorry, there was still a price that had to be paid in order to fix the fence and the car. My parents' forgiveness didn't make the price go away, but instead transferred the cost of the accident from me to them. And in the same way, when Jesus forgives us of our sin, the cost of our sin still needs to be paid. But Jesus transfers that cost from us to him. Jesus paid the ultimate price, his very life, so that we didn't have to. All we have to do is come to him and accept it. Now, isn't that the real miracle of the story? We next read in verse 8, When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. So often we're in awe when Jesus performs a miracle. But are we in awe when we are forgiven of our sins? Since forgiveness is a greater need we have than healing, 
shouldn't we be filled with an even greater awe and praise for Jesus when he forgives our sins? Not to mention the fact that he keeps on forgiving our sins. Jesus' healing of the paralytic teaches us, teaches us a few fundamental truths. We have learned about how important it is to first have friends, but also to be a friend that is willing to push past the social norms of the day or to push past those that are unconcerned in order to get to the feet of Jesus. We have learned that our greatest need is for forgiveness beyond any physical ailment and that we're powerless to save ourselves. But Jesus isn't. We have learned that it is our faith that Jesus is looking at, looking for, and that our faith can make a difference in the lives of our loved ones that we bring to the feet of Jesus. We have learned that Jesus actually has authority to forgive sins because he is God. And finally, God's forgiveness of our sins through Jesus should fill us with awe and praise even more than his healing hand. Yours and my greatest need is for forgiveness. And God made provisions for yours and my forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. If you have never trusted Jesus as your saviour, will you do so today? Jesus has the power to meet you at your greatest need and forgive your sin. And when you trust in him, he will speak the same words to you as he spoke to the paralytic on that day. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now instead of the band coming up for another song, I thought we could listen to the following music clip about forgiveness. While it's playing, no matter where you are at with your relationship with Jesus, whether you've only just heard about him or whether you've been traveling with him for 40 years, I want you to try and read the words on the screen and open yourself to God so that he can speak the same words to you and say, friend, your sins are forgiven. Can we play the video? to every sin you are forgiven 
Six feet under, I could have been lost forever. Yeah, I should be in that fire, but now there's fire inside of me. Here I am, a dead man. 